Amen. Well, good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And, and when you do, as uh, you'll see that we're at the last chapter. And I don't know how you feel when you get to the end. If you're new or you're a guest, welcome. Um, what we do here at Battleground is we, we expositionally study through usually books of the Bible, large sections of Scripture, and, and we look at everything. And so we've been working through 1 Corinthians for a while now, and we're at the end. And as your pastor, that's both exciting because we finished a, a, a letter or a book in, in its entirety, but it's also sad because we probably won't be back to 1 Corinthians again. And, and so I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've realized that the 1 Corinthian, the church in Corinth is not so much distant from us. And and so as you do that, I want you to make sure if, if, you, don't, if you don't have a copy of the notes, uh, it's on our website. Also, Pastor Micah sent, sent an email out. He's got an easy link right there that'll take you right to it. And so that way you'll be able to follow better with us. And, uh, and I hope you got everything situated in your den as we're in a, a den ourselves and we're all situated and ready for God's word. I want you to be expecting because we're not... We're not with each other right now. We're going to move to the Gospel of John next. Um, but we sort of want to save that for when we're together. And so we're going to go back, starting next week for about four weeks, we're going to look at some of the Psalms that we missed to make sure we have that first section of Psalms finished. Then we're going to jump into the Gospel. So let me pray for us again. And then I'm going to start reading from you. I want to show you something. I'm going to start reading in chapter 15. And then we're going to pick up the first few verses. And so let me pray uh, for us again. Lord, as we gather around your word now, this is your word that we are about and we do not come to it flippantly. Uh, just because we are not together does not give any of us the right to take your word any less for what it is. We are recording now and people are listening now and lord this is a holy moment as your people gather around your word and so lord may you forever change us not only individually but as a church through this word today we trust you in jesus name first corinthians i want to start with verse 15 look with me at verse 58 it's sort of where we left off last week Verse 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And so we introduced this last week and talked about it. We're going to talk more this week of standing firm in two things, in the work and in the faith. Notice something with me. Just let's go on. Remember, this was a letter. There's no chapters. Look at... Chapter 16 and verse 1. Notice this. If you notice with me, it goes right on from this. He's been talking about the resurrection, our bodily resurrection. And now in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. Verse 2, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those to whom you are credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And so does that seem sort of abrupt? If you know this, we've went through chapter 15 for quite a while. It's a sort of, there was sort of the magnum opus for many believers of not only Christ's resurrection, the gospel itself, but also 
What is it going to look like when Christ returns? What about our bodies? We've been talking about that. And then all of a sudden, he seems to abruptly change and talks about an offering, a collection for a church that's in Jerusalem. So what's up with that? Well, you see, it's, we know this because we're stuck at home right now, that we don't live life in theory. Uh, we, we don't, there's just in hypothetics, in, in my sermon illustrations, you don't live life right now. You've been stuck at home and your children have been stuck with you. And that could be really good or, or maybe really bad or really frustrating as, as we were all in life together. This is the church in Corinth. This is your life. There's a real need here. They're living a real life. This was a real church that had real problems and other churches were had problems. And how do we relate to each other? This is real life that he gets into. So this is not really abrupt at all. This is simply the application of the resurrected life. So context, where are we? It's important to always remember as you're going through a letter, Paul is on a missionary journey. We have a tendency sometimes to forget that, that he is on a journey and he has stopped in Ephesus. He is writing the Corinthian church from Ephesus where he spent at least two years. And he is concerned about the Corinthian church. We have seen both the beauty of the church and the problems of the church. And Paul has dealt with all of it. He has corrected error. He's dealt, he's encouraged the frustrated. He'd answered the questions of the confused. That's the whole point of chapter 15, correcting error, answering questions. But no matter what you have learned through this study of, of the first letter to the church in Corinth, I hope you have seen one thing. We've been singing about it this morning. Paul loved the church. Paul loved the lost. Paul loved people. And if you've noticed anything, I hope you've already read uh, 1 Corinthians 16, you, you would have should have noticed a couple of things. How many people and how many churches Paul mentioned in this one little short section of Scripture, this closing of a letter. He mentions the church in Jerusalem, Galatia, Ephesus. He mentions people like Timothy and Apollos, Aquila and Priscus and Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaeus. He mentions all these people. Paul loved people. He invested in people. He loved the lost. So our main idea today, the local church must stand firm together in the faith as we abound in the work of the Lord. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. The, the work of the Lord has a priority. There's a priority that we have to start with. There's also the reality of need. And you know that even in the days that we're in. And this leads to a work. And, and so that's what we want to talk about today. And make no mistake, we're going to mention this a couple of times. There is a great enemy of the work. And I guarantee you, in your home this past week, that enemy has been working. He's always working. He's working in the church. He's working in the family. We need to be aware of him today. But listen, there is an enemy, and it is us. We are our own problem oftentimes. And so let's be careful if we blame what's happened in our life this past week and how we have engaged our family on the devil because there is a great enemy and it's, it's our own pride. 
and enlightened self-interest works against all of us. And let us remember 1 Corinthians 4, 7 reminds us this. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, how can we boast as if we did not receive it? And so let us remember this morning, there is a great priority. Before we talk about the work of ministry, we must talk about the priority of love. That's our first point. The priority of love. So we're going to do something a little different. I know many of you like to go start with verse 1, verse 2. It's not the way we're going to break this down. I want you to go all the way to the end, the last section. Matter of fact, I want you to go to the last verse Chapter 16 and verse 24. This is the last sentence he writes to the church. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We could preach a sermon on verse 24 today, but we don't have time. But I do want to start with love. I want to start that there must be a priority. Before we even see the reality, before we ever feel a necessity, we must start with our priority. There is a theology of love that Paul has dealt with almost in every letter he writes, especially to the Corinthian church. So I want you to do something. You may not be aware of it, but this issue, this issue of a need in the church, he deals with it in both letters to the, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Uh, the first time he's bringing this up apparently didn't, didn't sink in as much as it needed to. And so he spends two chapters in his second letter. And so I want you to find 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because we're going to keep going back there. Paul gives us more information, more explicit instruction to the church there. And so we can glean from that. I want you to see this because in here is a good starting place so that we understand first our theology of love. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command. And Now, let me pause for a second before I read this. This is the exact same context. There is a need, and he is stirring and spurring God's people to meet that need in the, for the Jerusalem church. It's the same context. It's, I just want to make sure that's clear. Now, look with me in verse 8. I say this not as command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Look at how he motivates in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you see the theology of love. The theology of love begins and ends with Christ. He began this letter dealing with division by saying, I will know nothing but Christ crucified. He deals with division at the first of the letter by pointing out the fact that Christ died to make us one. And so now he's motivating God's people to deal with the issue of need in another church. By pointing them to the fact that Christ became poor, he gave up something great to come and become not only one of us, but to die in our place. And so this is the theology of love, and this is important because all through Scripture, right belief lead, leads to right living. If we want to see people who later we're going to talk about generosity, we must begin at the cross. This is the proper motivation. But make no mistake, a good theology leads to a right practice. 
So a theology of love leads to the practice of love. Paul's been talking about this through his whole letter. Now back to 1 Corinthians 16. Look with me at verse 14. You see how love acts. He's, he's reminding them, let all that you do be done in love. Everything. And matter of fact, in, in chapter 8, if you want to flip back there in verse 1, you remember that we had this issue with food being offered to idols. And some people think, and they didn't have a problem with food offered to idols. It's just food. And other people were, were stumbling spiritually over that. You remember what he said? You can have, the, you can have knowledge and have your knowledge in pride. Look at verse, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. Look what he says. Love builds up. So to have biblical knowledge, we have learned through, through, through the, this whole study, this must be motivated. It must be a priority that we love. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13? He spends a big section right in the middle of spiritual gifts. And he says, basically, you can have spiritual gifts running out your ears. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. You remember verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful some of us need to just take a moment and repent for what our week has looked like this week because it has not been characterized by what i've just read this is a priority and so now look with me at verse 20 it's how he's closing his letter out all the brothers send you greetings greet one another with a holy kiss now, I have heard this many a time because it's, it's in Paul and Peter's writing. And most people just make a joke and move on, you know, about kissing each other and those kinds of, kinds of things. We didn't kiss each other this morning. But make no mistake, our priority is the same. You see, and I could stand to be corrected, and if you see it, please correct me. But to the study that I have given this, I can find nowhere in the Greco-Roman world that this was part of their culture. This was specifically Christian. And so don't miss that today. That's why I be began at the end. There was a normal priority of love within the community. Right now, if you are saved... You are longing to be with your community. We are aching to be together. And if you're not aching, there's a problem. There is a priority of love, and it was there, and it is here. Love is the authenticator of a faithful Christian. So we begin first by, by st starting at the end of this letter and saying there must be a priority of love because when there is it brings to the surface very easily and very clearly the reality of need. There was a reality of need. That's our second point. There must be a priority of love because there is a reality, the reality of need. So look with me now at verse 1. There is both a physical need and a spiritual need that we can see in this chapter. First, the, there is the Jerusalem need. The Jerusalem need. That's what he's talking about in the first four verses. The collection for the saints, verse 1, 
Just as I directed the churches in Galatia, I'm directing you to do the same. The Jerusalem believers were in need. You remember the Jerusalem church is where it all began. That's where Pentecost was. That's where the church explodes onto the scene. And Paul begins his missionary journey and takes it to the Gentiles. And many churches were born, including the Corinthian church. Now the tables have been reversed and the Jerusalem church is in need. Romans 15, 26 says this, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Now don't get confused. Macedonia and Achaia are just regions. Their provinces and the local churches are located inside of those areas. They're saying that these churches have already, including the Corinthian church, are taking up a contribution. This was a one-time offering, a one-time gift to help the poor. You see, there had been at least two famines in Jerusalem that had left the poor and the church struggling. And so Paul had made that need aware to the churches. This was important for a couple reasons. One is very practical. that They were in need. In other words, they were taking this collection up because the body of Christ was suffering. So the remedy for that to meet this physical need was to take up an offering so that the need might be met. But there's something that you don't want to miss today that's part of this. This was cross-cultural ministry. You see, these most of the Christians in Corinth were Gentiles and most of the Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish people. This was cross-cultural These weren't people who were just saying, we're just going to take care of us, of our tribe, of our church, of our denomination. These were people that were suffering in the body of Christ. And so the body of Christ came to their aid. There's a lot we can learn from here. There was a need. Now, if you've got 2 Corinthians 8 still marked, flip back over there because we can gain a little bit more understanding of this need. Look at verse 11. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 11. So now finish doing it as well. So let me start over. So now finish doing it as well. So let me stop there for a minute. So they're not finishing it well. (laughs) The, The plea for contribution in 1 Corinthians here that we're reading, they're lagging behind. And so Paul is writing and dealing with this again here so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if, there is, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that uh, as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Wow, wonder if we applied that principle over the last month. So we see, he's reminding the church that there was a need in Jerusalem He's reminding them to give in proportion to what they have, not to give in proportion to what they do not have. The reality is that one time or another, we will all find ourselves in need. 
He is reminding them that right now the Jerusalem church is in need, but it only takes one turn of events until we are in need. The Jerusalem church was in need, and I don't want to spend much time on it this morning, but I just want you to go back to 1 Corinthians 16. Look with me at verse 6. Because Paul also had needs. Now, Paul didn't drive... Um, derive an income from anyone. But Paul, remember, was on a missionary journey. We'll talk about that in a minute. Look at verse 6. Paul had needs. He says, And perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Paul had needs as well. And we depended, he depended on the church. So we have both physical needs, but oh my goodness, don't we know that the Corinthian church had spiritual needs. So there's both physical needs and spiritual needs that exist in the body of Christ. I'm not going to belabor this because the whole point of us studying Corinthians is to see the spiritual need that was all over the place in, in the church in Corinth. But there was a Corinthian need. Do you remember some of them? Unity, humility, purity, fidelity, love, for Christ to motivate what they did. And as we'll talk about in a minute, generosity. They had a spiritual need. And what was Paul doing to meet that need? Well, he's writing the letter for one thing. But I want you to look at verse 7 to 9. Listen to Paul's heart. For I do not want to, want to see you now in just in passing... I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so don't miss that. Paul wants to come back to the church to meet their need. They still have a spiritual need, and he wants to come back himself and in person. And look with me at verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as am I. And so not only does, does, he, does he want to come himself, he sends Timothy. If you look at verse 12, he desires, he desires to send Apollos. And in verse 15, the house of Stephanos is already ministering to him. They have spiritual needs, and Paul is prioritizing meeting those needs. He's meeting them himself. He's meeting by the men that he is investing in. One of the things that, that some of us have experienced this week was a pastor's conference. And we were actually supposed to fly, fly there or drive there, but we couldn't because of, of the, what's been going on. And so we're, we experienced our pastor's conference just like you're experiencing this right now uh, through a recording. And, and we were blessed by that. And this was something that one of the pastors pointed out to me. Don't miss this this morning. Don't miss how your spiritual needs are being met. Ephesians chapter 4 says that Jesus Christ ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. Do you know what those gifts are? They're people. Ephesians 4 11 says he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. He meets your spiritual needs just like he met the ones in the Corinthian church through people that God equips and God calls and God sends into your life and mind. And some of us are those gifts to God that he gives to people. 
So this is important. The Corinthians had need. Not only that, but did you notice in verses 8 and 9, the Ephesians church had need. The church in Ephesus, they had needs. That's why Paul wasn't with the church in Corinth already. He said, hey, a door of opening has opened here, and I'm not leaving. These great things are happening. You can read in Acts and see some of those things. You see, it's important battleground. And if you're watching, no matter who, where you are right now, what church you're a part of, the church of Jesus Christ is bigger than battleground. And it's bigger than whatever church you're a part of. This was what the church in Corinth was being reminded. God is working. And he has his people all over. And when there is a need, we are the body of Christ. And we should meet those needs together. This is clear in Scripture. We should be partnering together. God help us when the pastors of churches compete against each other. We are one people called by the name of Jesus Christ. And we meet each other's needs, both physically and spiritual. That's exactly what's happening here at the end of this letter. Sidebar here, but an important one. If you look at verse 9, some of you spend a lot of your time of your life fighting temptations and you get victory in those temptations. You begin to grow and you join God's work and you get your armor on and start fighting. And it gets worse for you. And you're thrown, you're thrown off and say, what's going on? Look at verse 9. Paul says, a wide door is open to me, but there are many adversaries. <laughs> and as, the more you're in the work of the Lord, the more opposition you will face. So you begin, we go back to the beginning. It must be a priority of love that reveals the reality of both physical and spiritual needs. This means that we must come together because there is a necessity. And the necessity brothers and sisters, is work. It is work. And so we're going to look through the same section again, but I want you to know, understand our language as church because we try to use the language of Scripture. The work that I, we're describing, the work that chapter 58, the abounding work we call missions and ministry. Missions, you see, is when we join God's work of gathering the people. We do that through evangelism. God's got his people and they're lost and we go out there and we declare the gospel both in your work and wherever he takes us to the ends of the world and we gather God's people through the proclamation of the gospel and then ministry, what we are saying by ministry is the building up of the body of Christ. So once God's people are gathered, they must be discipled. They must be cared for. They must be equipped. They must be provided for. They must be protected. So the work, the abounding work that comes from understanding the need is the work of mission and ministry. So... These things should be inseparable, you see, brothers and sisters. If they're not, what you're going to do is find yourself taking care of people, all of which are in their 80s and 90s. And if that's happening today, we may need to go back and look at the fact that we may have abandoned the mission. For the mission goes out and gathers. So God's church is always gathering. It's always serving and building each other up. This is the work. They are inseparable. And so, do you, but do you see it? The reality of need brings the necessity of generosity. The reality of need 
brings the necessity of generosity. And see, just like love, there is both a theology to generosity and a practice to it. And so let's go back to where we started. Go back to 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 8 and verse 8 again. I want you to see it. It comes from the same well, the same pool we pour up both love and also generosity. Look at verse 8 again. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness, the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then he declares the gospel again. You remember verses 9? So this is it's one of those moments where you know everybody says this, whether you're a teacher or a preacher or anything else. If you don't get anything else I, I'm, I've said so far or after this, get this. A love that is not a generous love is not Christian love. A love that is not a generous love is not Christian love. Here he's saying, your love is going to be tested. How? By your generosity. The need has been made. It is clear to the Corinth that the Jerusalem church is struggling. That now becomes the test of what is their priority. You see, if the priority is not love, you will not even see the need. You will simply say, I have to take care of me and mine. And you will move on with your life. And you will miss the work of the Lord. Because Christian love works itself out in generosity. That's just the way it works when you dwell on the cross of Jesus Christ. When you, when you bask in the glory of the resurrected King. It just comes out as thank-filled generosity. We talked about last week but i want you to understand generosity has a nature it is itself when we talk about the abounding work of god when we talk about mission and ministry what's underneath that priority of love coming up from that is generosity back to chapter 8 again of of second corinthians i want you to see this because like i said he's so clear in in this second corinthians 8 look at verse 2 Talking about another church now. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He's saying this other church is suffering, but their generosity is so much, their thankfulness is so much that they were generous anyway, even above what they had. Look down at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This act of grace is taking up the contribution and sending it to Jerusalem. This is important in understanding the nature of generosity. No payback necessary. This is this is not a, a generosity that has this reciprocal agreement underneath the table. And you know what I mean. This is all over almost every culture. I'm going to do something for you, but then you become in my debt. It's called a debtor's ethic. If I invite somebody over to my house, and because of that, they feel obligated to invite me back over. We're in a house right now of one of our members. So here's the question. 
He's opened his house up today and taken all of this time so that we can record, record the message. Am I in his debt now? Is this reciprocal? The answer is no. You see, because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we realize what do we have that we did not receive. There's no payback necessary. This is Christian generosity. This is by its very nature what it is because it comes from the grace of Jesus Christ. This theology of generosity, this theology of love has a practice as well. And it's a very practical thing. So look at verse 2. See if I can quote it. On the first day of the week, they sold hot dog plates. Oh, no, no, that's not what it says, is it? What does it say? Oh, how we quickly sometimes go anywhere but Scripture to understand how to meet needs. On the first day of the, each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So very practical, isn't it? I hope you see today. So what was happening? Here's what he's telling everybody, the whole church. He's saying there's a need. Remember, it's a Jerusalem church. Here's what you need to do. Whether you're a day laborer and you get paid every day, whether you get paid once a week or, or maybe like me, get paid every two weeks, whenever it is, you are to set aside a portion of that to meet this need. And then notice what you do with it. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday. This is the church meeting on the resurrection day, just like what we do. On the first day of the week, you were to bring that that you set aside, and you're going to give it, and the church is going to put it in the church treasury so that when Paul comes, the money is ready to go and meet that need. This is the very practical way, you see. He's, in other words, Paul's saying, I'm not going to come and then you're going to have to do a fundraiser to try to meet this need. I want everybody participating, however they can, to set this aside. You're going to have to plan for it. You're going to have to save it. You're going to have to contribute it because there's a need. This is the very practical reality of having a priority of love, the reality of need, and the necessity of generosity to meet that need. It means that you and I and our church has to have a plan. We call it a budget. We have a budget. We try as much as possible to put our mission and our ministry in our budget so that when you bring your offering the first day of the week, we can meet those needs. This is the practical way that the early church, this was a need. There's also the wisdom of generosity. Do you see it in verse 3 and 4? He said, you pick some men. And what he's getting at there is above reproach. You pick some men of character to make sure this, this contribution gets to its intended goal, its intended people, so that it makes it. And we know He's willing to go himself in Romans 15. We find out that he did go and, and go along with this to make sure the money got there. There's a theology of generosity. There's a practice of generosity. There's also a wisdom in our generosity, which means we as the local church and you as individuals should be accountable. The priority of love brought the reality of need. They brought a practical response. Do you see it? It's simply generosity. And everything else comes out of that. I just want you to see a couple of other things. There's pastoral care going on during this whole letter. 
There's a lot going on at the end of this. He's putting a lot of things in here. But I, want, I just want you to look. Look with me back at 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verses 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Verse 16, be subject to such of these and to every fellow worker and laborer. This family, this household is ministering to the church. They're in leadership of some way. We're not given any other details. But what is the base understanding? This family is in leadership. They are caring for the, at least the church, if not multiple churches. Pastoral care is going on. Paul is making sure of that. But don't miss this this morning. It was we get to the end of this and Paul is saying, oh, there's a necessity here of not just ministry. It's not just about meeting needs, and it is. It's not just about taking good care of each other, and we should. Don't miss the fact that Paul is on a missionary journey to save the lost. That's what he's doing. As he is writing these letters, he is sending. He's on a missionary journey, and the churches are supporting his work. So don't miss the necessity of mission today. It's in here. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing, listen, the work of the Lord as I, I am. Verse 11, So let no one despise him, help him, on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Timothy is involved in the work of not only ministry, but the work of mission. Two things drove Paul, you see. The love for God's church and the love for God's mission to gather the nations that they may worship the Lord. This is the promise that's in Genesis 3. It's the promises that he gave Abraham. It's the promises that he promised David that they would be a nation, a kingdom. And so in Christ it was fulfilled and God has called us to that mission. It was Paul's passion. And I hope it's yours. Because you see there must be and there was both missional support and missional sending and going. So can I just explain something to you while you're at home? I would love for you to do this. Go on the internet, hopefully after I'm done, <laughs> and uh, look up two websites, the International Mission Board, the IMB, and the North American Mission Board, what we call NAM. As Southern Baptists, I don't know why you're a Southern Baptist, but I just wanted to take a minute. We're Southern Baptists and partly, not only for what we believe about God's Word, but because how we cooperate for the sake of mission. So can I give you an illustration and then ask you a question? So we just got through taking up the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And what do we tell, ask you to do? We ask you to set aside a portion, however, voluntary, however much God gives you the sense to give, to set that aside. And on a set time, we ask you to contribute it into the church treasury so that we may send it to the North American Mission Board because our missionaries are in need. We do the same thing at Christmas with the International Missions Offering. We'll call Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. We will ask you to set aside a portion so that our missionaries may be cared for 
Does that sound like anything that you've heard this morning? This is what Paul's doing. So don't miss the fact that Paul has established a mission association that he is planting churches and churches are supporting him. And he is, and they are supporting the work and he is sending and he is going and the churches are cooperating together. Brothers and sisters, I don't know why you're a Southern Baptist, but that's a big reason I am. This is exactly what we are doing. And I hope you're excited to be a part of that. We put a portion of our budget to support our missionaries. And we hope that grows exponentially in the future. So what? So what? The question is obvious, I hope. Will we stand firm together in the faith? Look at verse 13, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So what does that mean? How do we stand firm? To be watchful has normally two things just thinking about. To, usually the Bible is wanting you to look forward to the, to the return of Christ, to be watchful, to be alert, to be ready. At the same time, we're looking forward to something we're also guarding something in the present. That is, not only the temptation to sin, but our adversary, the devil, who seeks to destroy us. And so these two things are important if we're going to be involved in the work. Because like we said, it, it gets more intense when you, when you are in the work. Ephesians 6, 11 says it this way. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, so we're supposed to be strong. Act like men just means to be people of courage. Colossians 1.11 says it this way, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience, and joy. We labor, but he supplies the power. We are courageous and we are strong because he has promised he will give us the ability to do what he has called us to do. And so I urge you today to not buy into the lie because you see the adversary is working. He wants us to waste our life chasing a dream. And if we chase it, brothers and sisters, we will do so at the expense of the ministry of God and the care for the bride of Christ. This is our calling as Christians to gather God's people and to care for them this is what we live our life for until Jesus comes. We are to stand in the faith. Philippians 1, 27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what he has called us to. I just wanted to end with something maybe a little personal, but something that really affected me. And I, I hope that, uh, that it will impact you uh, a good many. Here's the question. What is the work God is calling you to embrace? What is the work God is calling you to embrace? What are you pushing against what has God laid what is the door that's open in front of you and you're too afraid to walk through it we had a calling that became really clear really wide for us at one time it was the calling 
to adopt. And we walked through that door and when the door is open wide, sometimes it seems like the devil comes in that door too. And uh, it didn't take long for seemingly that door to almost slam shut. And at one point it was a very grim outlook that we would ever get our children home. And uh, we were even told we just needed to go back to work and we did our best. And uh, But during that time, a preacher, much like I'm talking to you, uh, mentioned a book. It was called The Autobiography of George Mueller. Yeah. As I do when, when any pastor that I'm talking to, hint, hint, mentions a book, <laughs> I always write it down, hint, hint, because I, I can oftentimes learn something from that book. And wow, what a timely book. It's simply his prayer journal of a man who spent his life with a very clear work of taking care of orphans and I just wanted us to end today I want to read something he said because you see there's instruments that are necessary this morning if we are going to do the work that God has called us to do so I'm asking you Battleground Community Church what calling has he give us to do to gather God's people and will we be faithful to do it I want us to make sure that we hear notice the two things he said that are essential. Listen to this. George Mueller. It is quite true that my heart was affected by the deplorable physical conditions in which I saw destitute orphans before I began to care for them. But a higher motive by far actuated me than merely seeking the benefit of their health. It is further true that I desired to benefit the orphans by seeking to educate them. But I aimed at far more than this. Further, when I began the orphan work, I aimed at the salvation of the children. Listen. Yet even this was not the primary object I had in view. But in carrying on this work, simply through the instrumentality of prayer and faith, without applying to any human being for help, my great desire was that it might be seen now in the 19th century, God is still the living God. And that now, as well as a thousand years ago, He listens to the prayers of His children and helps those who trust Him. I can remember the impact that saying this man did what he accomplished through two things. Through the power of prayer into the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're about to sing a song. And it says this, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. Our heart's desire, battleground, is that this is the posture of your heart. Pray with me. Lord, we have heard the ending of this wonderful letter that you have allowed us this time to study through. Now, Lord, would you make us a people, one people, a people with one heart and one mind to strive in one spirit, side by side, to accomplish your mission and to care for your bride that you purchased with the blood of your Son. 
Lord, we long for that to be true. And so, Lord, may you, as we prayed in the beginning, stir our affections through this wonderful gospel that you have given us, this wonderful Savior whose name is Jesus. Will you motivate us? Will you refresh us with this unchanging, immovable gospel of you, our God, who loved us so much that you gave us your Son and slaughtered him to fix our problem so that we may be brought into your family Lord, today, you know our hearts. As we, as a group of people here, have been singing and we have people in mind, God. They're in our minds. And not all of them are saved. Oh, God, today that they're hearing the gospel and that they would repent and put their trust in you. Gather your people, God. For the praise of your glory, you are worthy of their worship and our worship, Lord. Gather us together and put us on the work, Lord. For the sake of your glorious name, we pray. Amen.